Hi everyone, and welcome to Himal Interviews. I'm Raisa Vikramatunga, acting editor, and I'm here with Sonali Deraniagala, who is a lecturer in economics at the SOS South Asia Institute. Um, we're going to be talking today about something that is still missing in terms of discourse around the economic crisis, which is, you know, what the fallout means in human terms. Thank you for joining us, uh, Sonali. Thank you, Raisa. My pleasure. Um, so just to kind of start off, a lot of the discussions around the economic crisis, which is unfolding, um, and even indeed, even in the region, there's this uh, fixation when reporting on statistics and kind of looking at the minutiae of IMF discussions. Um, but what are some of the impacts to human lives um, that we are seeing, which, uh, you know, beyond the kind of immediate crisis of hunger that is being uh, reported? Yes, well, I think there's, of course, a lot of discussion of the macroeconomics of the crisis, but the macroeconomics is, I think, intimately related to the human dimensions, as you say. And yes, in terms of human aspects, we talk a lot about hunger, about undernutrition for good reason, because this crisis in Sri Lanka has meant that there's been a devastating fall in people's money incomes. Um, in a, around eight out of 10 people of eight out of 10 households say they learn, earn less than they did before the crisis. And about seven out of 10 households have cut back on food, they say. So in this way, Sri Lanka has really descended into a new, very dark reality. And it's not the reality of a middle-income country that we used to be. And so we talk about hunger and all of these human issues a lot because in, in a way, hunger is the most immediate and the most viscerally felt human cost. There was an article recently in the Reuters I read about this man up in the north in Mulethivu who has become now a peanut farmer because he had lost both his legs in the war and um, you know he moves around on his arms. And he used to work on fishing boats and the crisis meant that that uh, avenue of income is lost to him and he's now has to perform a much more difficult job when his children are going hungry and so on. So yes, you know, these are devastating stories and this is only one such story. And the question we must ask is really what are the long-term prospects for families like this? You know, we talk about numbers, they say 700,000 additional people are going to be thrown into poverty. And the questions we have to ask is, you know, why exactly are they becoming poor? What have they lost? You know, is it a job? Is it an asset? And um, what can we do about it? So these are some of the key questions that we have to ask. And in, is as economists, you know, we have several tools with which to analyze this. So one idea is a notion that people fall into what is referred to as a poverty trap. And a poverty trap idea is very simple. It's a hypothesis. It's that households need to have a minimum level of assets if they, have, if they can escape poverty and if they can improve over time. Now, these assets could be a job, it could be a capital asset like a fishing boat or a piece of land. Um, they could also be skills and knowledge and things that make you more productive in the workplace. So what can happen in a crisis like the Sri Lankan crisis is that people can lose these assets. And we see that in the case of this man who is now peanut farming, he lost his job. And if you lose your asset, then the question is, is this transitory because of the crisis? And there's a lot of evidence to show that for a significant section of the population, this effect lasts over time and even intergenerationally. So um, some people might sell 
say they might sell a fishing boat because they need to smooth what we call smooth consumption. They need to feed their families. So, you know, you have to give preference to consumption over what you own. So that might cause them to lose that asset and you never then interest rates have gone up or you never have the capital to buy a boat again. And another very important way is um, through undernutrition and malnutrition. And that is another area of this poverty trap hypothesis that is very relevant to Sri Lanka and that's relevant to children in particular. Because what you find is in crises like this, there is, and there's new evidence in Sri Lanka too, that there's increased wasting and there's increased stunting among children. These are the first signs is wasting and then stunting um, due to the lack of nutrition. And for instance, there are some studies which look at very, very mega studies, which look at like more than a million children. And they find that when economic growth falls by about 10%, wasting increases by like 17 to 18%. That's a very big increase in wasting. And Sri Lanka is going to have, you know, minus 8% economic growth and plus. Um, now, why, why is this a bad thing? It's obviously bad in the immediate sense, but it's also bad because that then really, uh, that feeds into cognitive development, um, educational attainment falls as well as their own productivity and earning capacity in the future. So what this means is that there'll be intergenerational poverty. There could be when there are crises like these. Right. Thank you for that, Sonali. And, um, you know, speaking of that, once again, there were these statistics that were being cited, um, which was talking about Sri Lanka's poverty line. Um, which was declining before COVID and the economic crisis. So I believe it was around about 7,913 rupees last year. And recently it was actually reported that it has increased to 13,138 rupees. Um, so my question is, do you think that the indicators that I used to measure these statistics like poverty, do they provide an accurate capture of people who are experiencing it? Sure. I mean, the poverty line is used to measure absolute poverty. So when you say, you know, that 30% or 10% of the population lives in poverty, we mean that their incomes or expenditures on uh, essentials fall below this poverty line. So in Sri Lanka, the poverty line measures minimum expenditure per person per month that is necessary to meet basic needs. So the reason it went up from 7,900 to 13,000 something is because of inflation. It has to reflect, right? It has to reflect this very, very sharp rise in inflation. So, you know, so statistically you have to, um, you know, you have to uh, raise the poverty line. Um, but in reality, of course, you know, there have been other calculations that show that in the present context in Sri Lanka, uh, for a household, which is say 3.7 or 4 people, to meet uh, a WHO recommended diet, you need you know way more than that. You need 100,000 to 150,000 rupees per head uh, per month. And but this again, if you take 2019 data, you see that you know 40% of the population, uh, their earning uh, household earnings were only about less than 30,000 rupees a month. So yes, the poverty line, it was necessary to raise it, but you know, it doesn't capture poverty fully and it never does, especially in a country like Sri Lanka now where you know, wages are money, wages are fairly static, but inflation's rising very rapidly. So it's very hard to keep you know, a grasp of this all the time. 
Um, and we can also go beyond this simple poverty line measure. And, you know, very often we look at broader indicators on poverty. And there's an indicator called the multidimensional poverty index, which has been computed for Sri Lanka again only in 2020. So the data is older. And that looks not only at income, but other aspects of poverty. So it looks at health, education, and then many, many um, indicators of standard of living, like sanitation, access to fuel, transport, and so on. So the broader the indicator, in a way, the better. The poverty line is a very, very important indicator, but we must complement it with other indicators. People have been talking about, you know, the mental health impact of having to navigate um, multiple crises at the same time. Um, even if they they have access to financial resources and support, um, is there any research um, on any impacts that you know living in a state of uh, crisis in terms of finances, what how that might impact on mental health, and are there any studies on you know what can be done to address um, this issue? Yes, I'm sure, you know, in every crisis, for instance, Greece, you know, uh, after the 2009 crisis um, and with um, austerity and, you know, the economic collapse in Greece, you know, there's a lot of, there's, you know, quite a lot of research is done, I think, on young people and suicide and all of that on, you know, so the drastic effects on mental health of an economic crisis. Um, I think also, interestingly, from, you know, I'm an economist, from an economics point of view, there's a lot of uh, research coming out of what you call the behavioral school of economics. And that looks at how people's mental health affects, trying to look in a new research at how people's mental health affects their economic behavior. So, and that again is related to economic hardship and poverty. And the question is that um, when people are feeling multiple stresses like they are in Sri Lanka, you know, food prices are rising, there are shortages, people are losing jobs, incomes are falling, you know, you have these multiple crises happening. And that people's cognitive ability to cope with crises and to escape, you know, poverty is severely constrained. So that, you know, not through any fault of theirs, but there is just, you know, all you can do is it's kind of common sense as well. Your focus is on just the day to day, you know, how are you going to get the next meal for your children? How are you going to um, get a gas a canister of gas. So, you know, your focus is very immediate. So you can't think of longer term issues like, you know, how do I find my you know, child a better tutor? And so you can't think of issue, uh, issues that would pay off in the longer term. You know, some call it the economics of depression, the economics of hope. You know, there is this whole area and which shows that economists, we talk about equilibriums a lot and, you know, that this is actually an equilibrium situation. So it needs something to move it that you know, these people are kind of optimizing their behavior in this way and that poverty and crisis leads to this. So that economic shocks you know, create like a huge cognitive and mental burden on families. You know, one of the analogies used is that like um, uh, air traffic controller who's trying to avert a crash, they're trying to stop two planes from colliding and you can only focus on the two planes. You can't look at you know, anything else up there, a cloud or you know, lightning even, you can't, you have to focus on the main. So that is the issue of how stress feeds into economic behavior, if you like. Um, there's been a lot of emphasis uh, from the IMF and even from uh, policymakers on 
cash transfers in order to kind of address deprivation. Um, and what are your thoughts on whether uh, as a measure of using cash transfers to address this? And are there other solutions which could be implemented instead? And what might those look like? I mean, in this kind of, you know, what we, it is a huge economic shock. So in this phase of a crisis, cash transfers are, of course, important. But, of, you know, in the Sri Lankan context, it really has to work out how much, you know, what is the coverage and the coverage will have to be very extensive given the, you know, huge percentages of the population, 40, 50, 60 percent who are facing hardship. So that is a you know, big issue has to be worked out. Apart from cash transfers, you know, we have to, again, you know, need to look at this question very analytically and think what exactly, what are people, you know, what is this crisis doing to households? In what way are they facing income shocks? You know, how are these income shocks coming about? Is it because they're losing jobs? Is it because, as this poverty trap model suggests, there's asset, giving up assets or selling assets and smoothing consumption? Is it because of all these psychological factors of not being able to cope? And so in some cases, you know, it could be asset transfers, it could be subsidized credit to particular groups, to women, to and so on. Um, so this has to be, you know, as you said at the beginning, you know, our Sri Lankan experience, because it's, you know, so new and so shocking, we are full of narrative. And this is probably the time to, you know, do some research using, you know, sound methodologies, randomized trials and so on to see you know, what, are the, what are the kind of mechanisms or interventions that will work best. In. And there's a lot of evidence from around the world, you know, in some countries, in Bangladesh, there was a big randomized study which shows in some contexts that asset transfers worked better than cash transfers. Uh, in some countries, you know, direct interventions for children were very effective in Mexico and so on. So we really also need to do the work on that to see what will work, you know, which group needs which kind of intervention, I think. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, uh, it seems that we kind of wait for a crisis to hit before we think of... Yeah, I know. And even in the crisis, this is the time to do the work rather than winging it and just kind of, you know, throwing things at it. There yeah. is still time to do, you know, pilot studies and randomized trials and so on too. What might be the impacts of, you know, increased income inequality that Sri Lankans might not expect? And how should those be addressed? Uh, I mean, Sri Lanka is a country with, you know, fairly high income inequality. So I think we are in the top one third of the most unequal countries in the world. And wealth inequality is also, you know, very high, for instance, um, I think the top 1% of Sri Lankans own 31% of total personal wealth in the country, whereas the bottom 50% own, own less than 4% of total wealth. So that kind of gives you a snapshot of how unequal the country is. And even though historically since say 2005, we've had a fall in income poverty, income inequality has remained high. So this is a, it's gonna be a problem. And in any crisis, both in developing and middle-income countries, as well as in rich countries, financial and economic crises typically lead to an increase in income inequality. So what we can expect in Sri Lanka is, of course, a further increase in inequality. We talked about you know, the loss of incomes for the majority of the people. There'll be small groups who earn in dollars or will have 
their wages or salaries indexed to inflation in some way. So this gap between the rich and the poor is going to most likely increase in the Sri Lankan context. And that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for economic growth and it's not a good thing for economic development. There used to be the, the idea that the rich will save more and invest and therefore that is good for economic growth, but that is an old notion and that's been empirically shown to be you know totally wrong and what you need is demand in an economy to make you know to increase investment and so on um and also with high levels of you know inequality it increases the chance of political capture of small groups you know capturing political power in the country and of course in sri lanka we have that in spades as well so worsening inequality is a bad thing and it's a bad thing for policy making because you know you can have when small groups capture power political power or have a huge influence on political power you'd have the wrong type of economic policies put into place you know we need a export-led policy in uh, in sri lanka at the moment but the emphasis very much is still on even inward looking you know interventions on you know, um, so all of this inequality is not a good thing. It's not a good thing for public services and so on. So it's something that we really, really need to, you know, really be cognizant of and take into, take seriously. And there are policies, of course, you know, taxation is one way of dealing with it. Uh, having a very progressive, you know, increasing the coverance of taxation, the base and making it even more, pro more progressive. So it has to be kind of at the forefront of policy going forward, I think. There can be wealth taxes, there can be you know, increased corporate tax, it can be more progressive income tax, so on. Sri Lanka has an aging population. Um, and this was something that you could see even before, you know, all these multiple crises like the pandemic and um, the economic crisis as well. Um, do you think that we are adequately prepared to deal with the kind of issues this might raise in the future? And um, given that, how should we receive, you know, policy suggestions that we're seeing, which uh, sometimes include cuts to public expenditure on services like healthcare and education? Yeah, I mean, the aging population, you know, it will become a problem very soon, just purely in terms of our demographic dividend. You know, when you have a population which is more working age, then there is potential for these people to work and improve productivity and increase economic growth and so on. So the aging population then takes that away. People are out of the labor force. Um, and so that there is, you know, so you have a high dependent ratio, high dependent ratio, and then, you know, you need to increase a welfare net for an aging population and so on. So that's a challenge. I mean, even the IMF even argues that our social security, uh, our spending on a social safety net, which is only at around 0.4% of GDP, is, is very low and that it needs to be increased. So an aging population would mean this 0.4% would need to be, you know, of GDP needs to be increased quite significantly. The question is that what we need going forward is then a system which has, has, you know, a way to earn revenue. So through higher taxation or whatever, and then to really increase expenditure on health, education, social safety nets and all, which, you know, in Sri Lanka, you know, we're a very low tax economy and a very low spend economy. Yes, exactly. And and uh, speaking of fiscal consolidation, right now, uh, what people are talking about is um, the suggestion of a wealth tax, 
um, and you know people are saying that um, it's it's not feasible to kind of implement a wealth tax because our tax administration um, there's like difficulties in actually implementing that and things like that. So, what's your your kind of response to those arguments that are being made? Yeah, I mean, I think we can't dismiss it without really investigating it, you know, and I've seen some of the arguments made against it, and they're not very solid in an economic sense. So I think it needs to be, you know, the administrative side is one thing. And then, of course, there are, you know, there's a lot of lot of changes and a lot of improvements and we can make in that area in how to administer the tax. There are a lot of expertise in the world that we can draw on for that. So that is one issue. The other issue that a wealth tax is anti-growth and all of that, I mean, that we know, you know, most economists know that heterodox economists, or they know that it isn't, it isn't a deterrent on growth. And something, you know, in these situations is often very necessary. Um, so the one is the wealth tax. The other is, of course, to increase the base, you know, uh, you know, the scope of taxation in Sri Lanka coverage, given how few people, you know, even pay income tax, and then to increase the um, progressivity of tax. And then the issue of corporate tax as well. You know, are we, you know when, when are you stopping, you know, giving incentives, corporate tax incentives and so on. So I think the wealth tax definitely needs to be looked at in, and, you know, carefully to see how much it, how much is going to be bringing, how easy is it going to be administered and look at it in a normative way rather than be afraid of it. And I think that's very important going forward. It's, it must be taken seriously, definitely. A lot of work on wealth taxes that can help. This was a foreseeable crisis. Yeah. Um, and given this, you know, in, given the benefit of hindsight, um, what steps could we have taken to prevent this from happening? Uh, and not just for hindsight, but also to try to break this cycle um, where Sri Lanka and indeed even other countries in the region like Pakistan who are facing um, similar issues, continually having to return to the IMF um, for, you know, aid. Sure. I mean, of course, yes, this was a, you know, it, this was an avoidable crisis, no? like you said. And, you know, there were policymakers, of course, who had the foresight, you know, there were some who, you know, very well knew, and then there were others who completely ignored and were, you know, um, you know, following, I don't know, it wasn't economics, but it was some kind of voodoo economics that was being followed in Sri Lanka. So we need to have, you know, we also need to have a huge separation between the technocrats who run, you know, the finance ministry and the central bank and politics. So that's one way of, you know, when, when you don't have a separation, then, then of course, you know, there's capture. And that's what happened in the immediate sense. In the longest term, in order to avoid this kind of, you know, it's really, it originates, we say we have a twin deficit problem. And one of the bigger problems, a fundamental deficit, I think, is still the bans of payments. And, you know, coming back to that, we need to um, move the economy into being an um, export-led economy which is able to export kind of high value added products and we need to participate in global supply chains in the correct way. You know, there are two ways to go become an export like that economy. You can do take the low road, which is like cheap labor, 
um, and you know, very little value added, low technology, or you can take the high road. And I think we need to kind of really take the high road in terms of getting into some parts of these global supply chains where there is still space for it. And it's quite alarming that even now, and even without an export economy, we are really taking a low, low road to development in terms of this encouragement of migrant labor to leave the country, you know, skilled people, unskilled people, everyone, that one option is to push people out of the country. Now, of course, it's, you know, for those people themselves, it's necessary in an immediate sense, you need relief, you need a job, you need money. But you need to really understand that this alarming rate at which there is an exodus of skills in the country is a huge, going to be a huge deterrent to development, and especially in terms of an export-led strategy. Because now there's a lot of you know, discussion globally amongst economists about whether we, the world has entered into a new phase of globalization. It's not the old world where there was a lot of supply chain uh, activity in trade, like with you know, some components being manufactured in various countries and all of that. You know, trade as a percentage globally of um, world GDP is falling. Um, how and then you know countries like China are not going to dominate these supply chains anymore. But that also means that there's space for countries like Sri Lanka, Vietnam, you know some countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, Bangladesh are successfully, you know, occupying some of this space and manufacturing for these global supply chains. And another area, of course, is services, which is also why I think it's very dangerous that we have this huge exodus of skilled labor because there's a lot of scope for service, you know, to join in the global supply chains and services like IT, accounting, um, and all of that. And that is, you know, high skilled. So the value added to the country is relatively high. So, you know, in order to not fall into this, we need really a big fundamental shift in uh, the way we think. And at the moment, you know, very few signs. I mean, there is noises being made about exporting, but when you look at the real things that are being approved in the country, like, like casinos and which, you know, there is the very kind of, in terms of economic development, the payoff is very small. The payoff, you know, is very, very small with big negative externalities and so Yeah, that's true. And um, on that note, thank you so much for joining us, Sonali. Um, and thank you for your thank insight. You, thank you so much. Yeah.